Okay, turn to Psalm 119. Or as Mike announced this morning, Psalm 118. I thought, oh no. I hope I don't have to do that. Psalm 118. <laughs> so turn to Psalm 118 or 119, either one. We'll see what happens here. Um, you'll notice as you flip through the psalm and, uh, and look at it, and you've seen it already many times, no doubt, but see, it's easily the longest psalm there is. In fact, it's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's an amazing chapter. And look at your Bibles there in Psalm 119. You'll see it's divided off into sections of eight verses each. Looks like someone deliberately did that. <laughs> if you think that, you're right. They deliberately did that. And uh, the psalm does not name the author. We don't know who did it, who, who wrote it. The guesses have been David. Maybe David wrote it. We don't know. Um, some people have thought even the prophet Daniel might have written it, believe it or not. I don't know how that would be possible, but um, they, a lot of people think that. Some people think Ezra, the, uh, Ezra wrote it. Others have been mentioned. We don't know who did it. But you'll notice that each section is preceded by a strange word. <laughs> you notice that? Look at verse 1 right, right above your Bible. Hopefully you have it in your Bible. A-L-E-P-H. What is that? Then verse 4, verse 9, you got B-E-T-F. Sounds like somebody you might know somewhere, Beth. But uh, the, first letter, the first one is Aleph. These are Hebrew letters, and there's 22 of them in the Hebrew alphabet. And you, and you see it goes throughout the whole psalm that way. And uh, this is a... This follows the pattern of, an al of the Hebrew alphabet. This is an acrostic, it's called. So the first eight verses, if you, in Hebrew, um, each verse begins with the letter Aleph, it's called, like our A, like, our, like letter A in English. So if you saw this in Hebrew, you would see that the, the verse 1 began with the letter Aleph, verse 2 begins with the letter Aleph, verse 3 begins with the letter Aleph, all the way through verse 8. And then, you, just like if it was in English, if we could see it tra transliterated over into English that way, Verse 1, we begin with the letter A, maybe something like all are blessed whose way is blameless. Verse 2, we begin with the letter A, um, maybe again all are blessed who's, who observe his testimonies, but it could be different words, but that's how it is. And then, then you go to the next, verse 9, you got Bet or Beth, it can be either way in Hebrew, and, and, it's, and it's the same thing. Each, each verse in that section begins with that letter. And it's designed this way on purpose. Probably most people think, and that's, this is not the only acrostic in the Bible, by the way. There's others, you just don't see them readily. Like in Lamentations, there's other Psalms that are like this. Maybe for the purpose of memorizing Scripture, so people can memorize it easier. But this entire Psalm, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introducing this, is about the Word of God. It's all about the Word of God. Or we could say maybe the Word of God from A to Z, something like that. All about the Scriptures. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the theme of the first eight verses of Psalm 119, and that's what we're going to cover tonight, the first eight verses, Aleph, is simply this, obedience to the Word of God should characterize the life of a believer. Obedience to the Word of God should characterize the life of a believer. If you'll notice, the it starts out in a general way. The first three verses uses the pronouns those or they. For example, verse 1, blessed are those. His way is blameless, very general. Verse 2, blessed are those who observe his testimonies. Verse 3, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. It's just generally stated, it can refer to anybody who's obeying the word of God. Then it starts to get more particular. Verse 5 narrows down to you. It says, you have ordained your precepts. That's the reference to the Lord. Then it goes in verses 5 to 8, the third section, the main personal pronouns are me and my and 
I and words like that. For example, verse 5, Oh, that my ways, the psalmist says, may be established to keep your statutes. So we start off with this general truth. It could apply to anybody who obeys the scripture. And then it narrows down to where the psalmist says, oh, I'm going to apply this to myself. Now it comes down to me. So we are, we're going to start off with the general truth that's true of everybody, that God's word is a blessing to everybody who obeys it. And then it's going to get down to each one of us individually, and we have to look at ourselves and say, am I doing this? Am I obeying the word of God myself? And so it's specifically applied to each individual. All of us will be put under the microscope tonight as we look at this psalm. No one can escape. We have to apply it to ourselves. Tonight we want to consider three truths regarding our obedience to the word of God. Our obedience to the word of God. Number one, those who obey God's word are truly blessed. Verses 1 to 3, those who obey God's word are truly blessed. Verse 1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless. I, I say blessed or blessed sometimes. I get them confused. I had a guy one time say that, oh, you can't say it that way. You've got to say it this way or it means something bad. I don't, I don't know that that's a big deal. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Just like I said earlier, the whole idea is here in the first eight verses of Psalm 119 is that the lifestyle of the believer is to be an obedient one, walking in obedience to God. And you can tell he's referring to a way of life. This isn't some passing fad. This is a way of life. Because he uses words like, uh, he talks about walking, observing, seeking, keeping, learning. These are things that people do who are obedient to the word of God. It's what they do. They do these things. They are doers of the word, not hearers only. This is an ongoing process that continues on into eternity. It's not a temporary process. Although you would think, the way some people live and act, that it is a temporary process. It's not. It's not something we can take or leave. It's our life. This idea of obeying the scriptures. Psalmist repeats a word several times in these verses. That word is the word way or ways. Verse 1, how, bl how blessed or blessed are those whose way is blameless. Last part of verse 3, they walk in his ways. Verse 5, oh, that my ways were established. That word can be translated way or road or path. It's the idea of a well-worn path that you're walking on. It's, 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 wa it's, it's well-worn because you're constantly walking on that path. It's a, a thing you do all your life. Now, there's only two ways in life, and, and two only, and that's it. Not, not another way, it's two. You can walk in the way of the Word of God. That's one way. As Psalm 119.105 will later tell us, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my what? My path, right? My way, my road, the way I'm taking. You can follow that path with the word of God as your guide. You can do that. Or you can follow the way of the fool. Like it says in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. It seems to me that most people have chosen that path, by the way, because they, they do what they want to do. It's right in their own eyes, the path they take. Um, now, you choose the path. You choose the path. Are you going to follow the path that gives guidance from the Word of God or the path that is the way of the fool? It's right in your own eyes. You're going to do whatever you want, and you're going to throw aside, cast aside the Word of God. Psalm 1, this idea of two ways is all throughout the Scripture. Psalm 1 talks about the two ways, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. And you all know Psalm 1, the way of the wicked is characterized by 
uh, people who scoff at the word of God, right? They scoff at the things of God, it says in that psalm. It's characterized by giving evil counsel to people. Um, it's, it's a life that will not pass the judgment of God. That, they're, they're not going to get through the judgment of God. They're going to be judged by God. It's a life that will perish ultimately. It's not the way you want to go. The way of the righteous is characterized by delighting in the word. He delights in the law of, of, of God, it says. Uh, it's characterized by stability, like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Characterized by fruitfulness, the tree bears fruit. It's characterized by spiritual prosperity. Whatever he does, does is going to prosper. Not, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I said spiritual prosperity. And so it's a life that God approves of. And Psalm 1 concludes this way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a contrast, two ways. Way of the righteous, way of the wicked. And then Jesus said in Matthew 7, there is a narrow way and a broad way. Right? There's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many people go in that way. And then it's easy to go that way, travel that way. A lot of people are going that way. <clears throat> and there's the narrow way that leads to life eternal. And few there be that find it, it says. So you, you always have these two ways in the Bible, contrast between the two ways. Light, there's light, there's darkness. There is truth, there's error. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And there is the way, the truth, and the life who is Christ. I always had these two ways. The way of believers is the way of Christ and the way of the Bible. There's another word repeated in here, not only the word way, in this section, that's the word walk. <clears throat> the word is found in verses 1 and verse 3. It says uh, there, uh, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. They walk in his ways. Walk means conduct. It's how you conduct your life. It's the path, the, walking on the path is how you're living your life. The path for the believer takes him through a direct route through the word of God. That's how it is for the believer. Believers are known for walking in the truth. That's what John said in 3 John. He said, I have no, the apostle John said, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The greatest joy of the apostle John was the fact that his, uh, the people he had taught, people had discipled, they were living out the truth. That's what they did. In fact, we've been talking about church history recently in, in our, in our, on Wednesday night, and Polycarp was a... Uh, a disciple of John the Apostle. It's not mentioned in the Bible, but he, he actually was, this is a true story, actually was a, an apostle of, uh, a, uh, a disciple of John the Apostle and a guy who lived all his life for Christ and then died as a martyr, refusing to, uh, to uh, give in to Caesar and, and bow to Caesar. And so believers live out the truth of the word of God. They don't walk in their own ways. It says in verse 3, they walk in who? Who's, whose way? They walk in his way, right? They walk in his way. Do you really want to walk in the ways of God? Do you want to walk that way? Then, then you have to conduct your, um, your lifestyle in accordance, and it's got to be governed by the Word of God. If you're not doing that, you're not walking in God's ways. It's that simple. Either you're obeying Scripture or you're not. That's how it is. And when I say walk, the word walk here is not referring to the occasional stroll. It's talking about a lifestyle. It's something that's present tense. You're, you're, it's your regular, regular habit of life. It's a pursuit that you're always engaged in. You're grounded in the truth. You live the truth out. You walk in the truth. You're, you're all, this is how you live as a lifestyle, as a course of your life. Now, when you look at this, it's pretty convicting when you think about these things. Wouldn't you agree? You look at that, and you look at your own life, and you say, wow, there's a disconnect somewhere here. And you say, well, I, I failed at all this. Well, I don't doubt it. I failed at it, too. 
I have. If we, if we perfectly kept every precept of the Word of God all of our life at all times, we would be on par with Christ who never sinned. And none of us here can say that. Of course we have failed, and we will fail in the future, but our direction, as Mike said often, our direction is that we are obeying the Scriptures. That's the direction of our life. That's the direction we want to go. That's what we want to accomplish. We want to obey the Scriptures. And keep this in mind if you're discouraged about that. We're not alone in this pursuit. The Lord is with us. And we're going to talk about that later in this psalm. Now, the New Testament uses the word walk as well many times uh, in, in describing the behavior of Christians. In fact, it's a key word in the uh, epistle of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians says many times the word walk. It says, for example, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians says walk no longer as the unsaved, unsaved Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So we, wanna, we don't want to... Have a lifestyle. We don't want to continue the life as that we had when we were unsaved, do we? He says, "No, don't keep walking like that. Walk this way now." As scripture says, or Ephesians says, "Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you." So we don't. We want to be people that are loving. That's what it means to walk with God. Walk in the light. Walk as children of light. It says in Ephesians, "We want to walk in the light. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise." These are some of the ways that it looks like to walk in the ways of God. Kind of puts a face on it. Now these first eight verses of Psalm 119 are about being committed to the Word of God as a way of life. You have to understand that. This is not a, something you do on occasion. This is our life. Psalm 119 says that those who walk in the law of the Lord, that their way is blameless. Look at verse 1, Psalm 119. Their way is blameless. What does that mean? That's a scary word, isn't it? We think, how can we achieve that? <laughs> well, the word means uh, it's, a, it's a way that is spiritually wholesome. It's a way that is sound, a way that's unimpaired. If you want to bring it down to uh, the bottom line for us to understand, it's a way of integrity. We are to have, be people of integrity. Uh, we are to live a spiritually wholesome lifestyle. This is what we're to live. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. The purpose of the Lord is the same. God wants us to be people of integrity. That's what he says. That's the kind of lifestyle that glorifies him. By the way, it's not limited to your age. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter if you're a mature saint or a new believer. The goal is always the same, to have a lifestyle of, characterized by integrity or blamelessness, as it's called here. Now, let me clarify something. When I say blameless, I don't mean sinless, lest you think that. Nor does it mean perfection. Nobody's going to live a perfect life, although some people apparently around here in the city think that that is the case. But the Lord is not saying that those who walk in His law are sinless. He's saying they are blameless, meaning they have integrity in this case, in this, the meaning of this word. And I know, as you look back over the course of your life, as I look back over the course of my life, we're often appalled at our what? Our lack of integrity, right? We look back and we say, wow, there are things I wish I would not have done, things I wish I would have done, Maybe words that we spoke we could take back. Maybe actions that we committed that we wish we would not have done. So we look at this word blameless and we might be tempted to think, well, I could never achieve this. This is just out of my range completely. Uh, maybe those who are especially spiritual can get this. And we think of the people who are especially spiritual, maybe they can achieve this. It's just a high standard, such a high standard. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. It's too high for all of us when it comes down, when, if you really want the truth about it. It is too high. Nevertheless, it's the goal. But that's why we depend upon the Lord, you see. Because he can enable us to be people of integrity. We look to him for his help. 
There's no way we can accomplish this on our own. It's impossible. So that's why we look to him for help. Now, this, is, this idea of being blameless, person of integrity, is found throughout the entire scripture. You see it all over the place. Starting back in Genesis, Genesis 17.1, the Lord uh, talking to Abraham, Abram, he's called at the time. It says in Genesis 17.1, Abram was 99 years old. <clears throat> and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, what do you, by the way, what do you think a, a guy that's Abraham, Abram is, he's 70, 99 years old, 99 years old. What, what would you tell that guy for, in the way of advice? You know, would you say, hey, Abraham, you're, you know, you've done a pretty good job in your life. You've been at it for a while. You've, you've seen your saint, your seasoned saint. You're, you know, you've been through experiences. You, you've done pretty good. After all, you deserve a break. It's, you're 99 years old. Take a rest. Coast if you... You know, if, if, if things don't work out for you, don't worry about it. If you mess up, don't worry about it. No, that's what we would say, right? Take a break. You're 99 years old. Relax. But that's not what the Lord says. He, the Lord tells Abraham something that's interesting at the age of 99. He says, walk before me and be what? Blameless. Wait a minute. This guy's 99 years old. Obviously, age is immaterial to the Lord. He still has the same message that he would have told Abram all his life. Be blameless, he says. That's what the Lord desires. He wants our whole, the whole, whole of our lives to be characterized by blamelessness. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. It doesn't matter if you're 99 years of old, 90 years of age. God is no respecter of person. His, his message is be blameless, regardless of what age you are. Still told to be blameless at the age of 99. Instead of Job, <clears throat> Job 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, it says. He was upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. So this is kind of a whole of a, a package deal here, blamelessness, fearing God, uh, turning away from evil. Uh, that's all together. That's, in other words, Job is a living example of a man of integrity. You read the book of Job, and you see that he's got his faults, too, and he complains about a lot of things. Look, he's under tremendous suffering. I get it. But he's still, you see his weak spots, too, but yet he's a man of integrity. Proverbs 11.20 says, The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in the way are his delight. The Lord takes delight in those who are blameless. That's what he's looking for. He's always looking for this. This is always his goal. He places a high premium on a blameless character. Now, of course, the underlying, uh, the underlying basis for such a character is God himself. God's character is what we base our character on. And also, his holy word is, is also a basis for, our, for holy character, for blamelessness. Psalm 18.30 says, As for God, his way is blameless. Now, obviously, the Lord has absolutely perfect integrity, unlike none of us in here in the room at all. And our character is based on his character. That's the idea. Psalm 19.7, talking about the word of God, says the law of the Lord is perfect. It's the same word. It's the word blameless. Or the word of God has integrity, you could say. That's why it's able to restore the soul. Because the word of God has great and has perfect integrity. And, this, and what the Lord required of the saints in the Old Testament, Abraham, Job, and others, he requires of the people in the New Testament. It doesn't stop in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.4, says, Paul says, Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and what? Blameless before him, right? Blameless before him. That was the Lord's intention before the world, by the way, began. We talk about God's election. We always talking about that around in this church all the time, constantly talking about election. But it wasn't just that he saved, he planned on saving us before the foundation of the world. He planned on us being living blameless lives before the foundation of the world. It's not an afterthought with God. That was his goal from the beginning. He wanted us to be people of, of integrity right from the beginning. So when you think of election, think of that as well as part of the package. Ephesians 5.27 says that God, that the Lord might present us to himself, the church, the Lord might present the church to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The Lord's purpose for the church is to be blameless, to be, uh, have, have integrity. And you know how important that is for churches. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent <clears throat> children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Wow, this, we live in a wicked generation, wicked world. Who's going to be people of integrity if we're not going to be? There's not going to be anybody. This is what the Lord expects out of us. Do you think the Lord might have a small, some small interest in the and the idea of his people being people of integrity, it's all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 119.1 says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless. This way of integrity, this way of wholesome living, of sound living, of being unimpaired spiritually, this, this way of being blameless, the world doesn't care about this. They'll lie, they'll, lie, they'll cheat, they'll do whatever it takes to get their way. You know this is true. But God's people are called to be different. They're called to this pursuit of blamelessness, being people of integrity. And this is all in connection with obeying the word of God. This is how it, how it happens. We obey the word of God. And that's, and that's where we go, from, we go from there. People of God can never, people who want godly integrity can never be separated from obedience to the word of God. That's what it's all about. Now those also who walk in obedience to the word in verse 2, they also seek him, it says, uh, with all their heart. They seek him with all their heart. In other words, they seek him with care. They inquire diligently of the Lord. This is not some half-hearted ritual people go through that love the Lord. They diligently want to seek God. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us that the word of God is not an end in itself. It's rather a means to an end. Go to the word of God because we, we, want, to, we want to know God. That's the idea. Of Packer, he mentioned Packer's book, Knowing God. You know God by knowing his word, right? As you get to know his word, then you begin to know who God is and see what God is like and is revealed in the scripture, his character and, and, and his ways and all this. And then you follow that road of seeking God, becoming blameless. The end goal of the word of God is that we might seek God himself. Now the term, the old term for, for the discipline of Bible reading and prayer used to be called the means of grace. I, I don't hear anybody saying that anymore. But you read the old writings and you'll, you'll, hear, you'll see that phrase, Use the means of grace. They're talking about things like reading the Bible, praying. Those are the means of grace. They're not the end. That gets us to know who God is. And then we seek him, right? We're encouraged to seek him. Because the word is doing what? It's always pointing us to God, right? It's always pointing us to Christ. It's always pointing us to the Lord and exalting him. Psalm 119.3 says that the people who are walking in the ways of God, they also do no unrighteousness. They don't only seek God. But they also do no unrighteousness. 
Again, nobody's achieved sinless perfection. It's not talking about sinless perfection. No one in this world has, has achieved that. King Solomon said, <coughs> there's no one upon the, in the world who's, who hasn't sinned. No one alive who doesn't sin. But the course of their life, again, is marked by uh, godliness. The, the, the phrase means they don't practice unrighteousness. They don't practice it as a way of life. And when they do uh, sin, they're quick to repent, right? Quick to confess it and get it right. Because the scripture teaches that believers, we're not slaves of sin. We're slaves of righteousness. Paul said that in Romans 6.17. Very interesting verse, Romans 6.17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin in the past before you were saved, you became what? Obedient. You became obedient to what? From the heart. Again, all these words relate to Psalm, obedient to the heart, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Started obeying the word of God. You were committed to it. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Before we were saved, we were slaves of sin. It was just an automatic, natural thing. That's what we did. There's no, no second thought about it. That's what happened. But then the Lord saved us. And uh, before, before we were saved, we were under the, the wages of sin was death, but then the Lord saved us. He freed us from that. Uh, and we discovered the, that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We discovered that. And we went from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. You're going to be a slave to somebody, right? Are you a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness? One of the two. And God saved us, though, and brought us under the influence of the word, that form of teaching to which you obeyed. You, you, you were committed to it, he says. Came, we became obedient to the teaching of God's word when we first heard it. When you got saved, what did you want to do? You wanted to hear the word of God, right? People that truly save want to hear it at least. And uh, Romans, 16, 7, Romans 6, 17 teaches that. But believers don't practice unrighteousness. They also do no unrighteousness. They're, they want a, a conscience void of offense toward God and man, Paul said. They want to live this way. We're talking about obedience here. Understand that. Now, some people don't like that. They don't like the idea of obedience. They don't like these words. I've noticed something's happened in the last few years. Apparently, some Christians are becoming more and more inclined to hyper-Calvinism and not Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism. They think that we have no role at all in walking with God. Uh, they think that it's all God and none of us. God does everything. We do nothing. We can't do anything. It's all been predetermined. It's all God. We can do nothing at all. We're helpless completely. I've noticed... People say things like, I, get, I hear things like this, and I wonder, what that's not, that's not a scriptural teaching. Because the Bible calls us to obedience again and again. It calls people to obedience. Obey me, he says. And look at the people in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 119. They are obedient people. It talks about them walking in the law of the Lord. The law is that word Torah you probably heard on occasion, which means it can be law or teaching or instruction. It's the idea of instructing, uh, that God is instructing people in his will, so you can see the will of God and what it means. The obedient take that law seriously. They walk in that law. They practice that law. They obey that law. It says they observe his testimonies. In other words, they, those are rules of conduct that they obey that are listed in the scripture, not just legalistic rules. But the Bible is not a legalistic book. It's, you have to, not only what it says, but it's also the spirit of the command as well in there. But the reason their conduct is righteous and blameless is because they're following the rules of conduct. So these people are obedient. They're seeking him with all their heart. They're not practicing unrighteousness. They're walking in his ways. To me, that sounds an awful, like, uh, awful lot like obedience. We have our part to play. 
Jesus made it very clear in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. How do you, what do you do with that? He says, obey me. So our first point is this. Those who obey the word are truly blessed. They're truly blessed. Twice in verse 1, we've talked about obedience quite a bit here. Twice in verse 1 and 2, it says that, how blessed are those whose way is blameless. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. And we like that word blessed, don't we? One of our favorite, favorite words. Christians like to use the word blessed. We say it all the time. It sounds very spiritual. We say it a lot, but the only problem is we don't always understand what it means. And I'm not against using the word blessed. It's, it's a scriptural word. Um, but here in Psalm 119, it can either mean what it says, how blessed, or it can mean how happy. How happy are those who walk in his way. And this is more than just a passing emotional feeling that you have or a good feeling you have. It's rather speaking of, a, of the status of an individual. The status, the way you live, the way you are all the time. It's a deeply rooted state of happiness that comes by living for God. Something in you that stays there. It dwells their deep-rooted joy is what it is. And, it, and it's defined, this is happiness that's defined by God, not the world. We know what the world says about happiness. And you hear a lot about happiness from the world, but that's, that's not in line with what the Scripture says. Somebody paraphrased this this way, and this is good. He said, how rewarding is the life of those who observe his testimonies. And that captures the idea, because... The life of the believer who's walking in obedience to the Word of God is living a rewarding life. It's rewarding. And there's, there's not a person alive who doesn't want happiness. Everybody wants happiness in his life. And if, and if I were to ask you and you told me you didn't, you didn't care about happiness, I don't believe that. All of us want happiness in life. The problem is, what is happiness? And how, do you, how is it achieved? How do you become happy? Well, many people look for happiness in all, in all the wrong places. Outside of the, word, of the boundaries of the Word of God, they're looking for it constantly, trying to find it, often not finding it. And these people who are doing this are the most miserable people there are. Why? Because they're not walking in obedience to the Word of God. That's the key. That's it right there. Those people walking in obedience to the Word of God as a lifestyle, as a, as a way of life, those people have a deep-rooted joy. can't be defined by the world. People apart from God can experience good feelings, Due to conditions that are favorable in their life, circumstances that are favorable, yes, they can feel good today, maybe tomorrow, the next day, that's true. Maybe they can have a sense of pride over something they have accomplished in life. Maybe they've been promoted at their job and they, and they feel good about that. But, but they will never experience, these people will never experience the joy and the peace and the contentment that God gives a, per, a believer in his heart because he's obeying the word of God. That's beyond their reach. If they're not walking with God, they're not walking in obedience to the word, they're not going to ever experience that true joy. Whatever they have is fleeting, it's on the surface. And people can be self-deceived, and they can fool themselves into thinking, I'm happy, when they're actually not at all, because they not, have nothing to do with the scriptures whatsoever. They can fool themselves, they can fool others, they can't fool God. There's only one group of people on the planet who have true God-giving happiness, who tr have true joy and peace, who, in a way that's defined by God, not the world. Uh, and those are the people that walk in obedience to his word. They are the truly blessed people. They are the truly happy people. They are the truly content people. You say, I'm not content tonight. I'm not truly happy. I don't mean an emotional feeling that you have right now. 
as a general way of life, you don't, you're not content, you don't have this deep-rooted joy, you don't have this contentment, this peace, could it be you're not walking in, this, in the Word of God? You're not obeying the Scriptures as a way of life I'm talking about. I'm not saying you, blow it on, you don't blow it on occasion. I'm saying as a way of life. George Mueller, the guy who ran the orphanages, you know he's my favorite guy, ran the orphanages in England back in the 1800s. After living a life of reading through the Scriptures again and again, up 200 times, by the way, and uh, everything he did, he wanted to base on the Word of God. That's why he did what he did. And his whole life was governed by the scriptures, and he tried his best to have them governed by the scriptures. At the end of his life, he said, I have been for all these years a happy man. Happy, 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 he said. He said it because the word of God, those who obey the scriptures are truly blessed. Number two, God gave his word so that we might obey it. Verse four, God gave his word so that we might obey it. Verse four says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. The word ordained is literally commanded. You have, you Lord, have, he's talking about the Lord. He says, you have commanded your precepts that we may keep them diligently. The you is emphatic, talking about God without a doubt. And now the Lord's going to weigh in with his perspective, as seen by the psalmist, on this whole idea of obeying the scriptures. The Lord's going to tell us what he thinks about obeying the scriptures as from the psalmist's point of view. And the psalmist says, you have commanded your word so that we should keep it diligently. Here's the question. Why did God give his word? Why did he give his word? So we could analyze it and so that we could um, look at it and decide whether or not it was worth spending our energies and time and efforts on. Is that why he gave his word? Does the Lord consider it optional? Here's my word. It's, it's an option. Take it or leave it. Do you want to obey it or not? Is it an optional thing with God? You know, in the Garden of Eden, Satan asked Eve the question. He said, indeed, as God said... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. In other words, he questioned the word of God, and, and basically he led Eve, Eve to believe it's not that big of a deal to obey the word of God. It's not a big deal. Let me ask you a question. Is it a big deal to obey the word of God? Why did he give his word? It's very simple. Verse 4, he gave his word so that we might keep it diligently. He gave his word, invested it with his full authority, and he gave it so that we might obey it. It's very simple. doesn't take a rocket science to figure this one out. He gave it so that we might obey it and that we might obey it diligently. That's what he says here. And if we don't do that, guess what? It's an affront to God's person because he gave his word so we, so we would obey it. And if we're not, then we're spitting in the face of God, basically. Anything less than this, than obedience, is unsatisfactory to God. That's what verse 4 says. Very succinctly it says it in one verse, by the way. And keeping his commandments is not a burden. We might think, oh, it's such a burden to keep the commandments of the word of God. It's not intended to be a burden to bear. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. It's not a burden to keep the word of God. In fact, according to this psalm, it's a blessing. Because it says, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies. It's not a burden. God gave his word so we might obey it. Those who obey God's word are truly blessed. And thirdly, we must rely upon God to obey his word. Verses 5 to 8, must rely upon God to obey his word. Verse 5, oh, that my ways, the psalmist said, may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn of your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. 
Look at that, that verse 5. Oh, that my ways were established to keep your statutes. That's the prayer of the psalmist. That's what he's praying. Why does he pray this way? Well, first it shows his desire to obey the word of God. Just like Peter said in 1 Peter 2, he said we're to desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby, right? We're to desire the pure milk of the word to grow thereby. There should be in every believer this ever-growing desire, ever desire to love the word of God and obey what it says. We should long for it, just like a newborn longs for its milk, it says in 1 Peter 2. But there's, there's something more here. Not only a great desire, there's a deep awareness on the part of the psalmist that he can't do it on his own. He needs divine help, and so he's crying out to God, Oh, that my ways might be established to keep your statutes. Yeah, he wants to obey. He desires to obey. He's, he knows he's responsible to obey. God's called him to obey, but he realizes the weakness of his flesh. That I hope all of us here realize the same thing. So what does he do? He casts himself upon the mercy of God, and he says, Lord, help me. God's going to have to establish his ways in order for this thing to happen. God's going to have to help him to walk in the way of the word. The psalmist knows this. He knows that he cries out to God for help. See, we're not alone in this pursuit of obeying the word of God. We think, well, we can't do this. But we're not alone in this pursuit. Yes, we must obey it. We're called to obey it. But we're not alone. God can help us. And by the way, we cannot live the life that God wants us to unless we depend upon him. We can't do it. We can't live apart from his spirit. It must be a complete reliance upon God to do this. Speaking to Israel in the future, in Ezekiel 36, <clears throat> 27, this is a great verse. God talks about Israel in the future. He says, one day to Israel, he says, this is what he says. The Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Isn't that what the Lord's done for us? Now he's put his spirit in us and he is going to enable us to obey his word. You know, we play our role in this. We obey the word of God, but not apart from the Lord. The pursuit of obedience is one in which we lean upon the Lord. We lean heavily upon him as we pursue the blameless life. I love John 15, uh, one of my favorite verses ever. I've thought about it many, many times. Looking back over my pathetic life, often failing, and I thought to myself in John 15, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing at all. So we depend upon him, right? What are the results of depending upon God? There's three mentioned here. First of all, unashamedness in verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I'm obeying your word, when I look upon all your commandments. Uh, you know, when, when, if, you're, if we're not keeping the word of God, if we're not obeying them, we're, we're ashamed, aren't we, and embarrassed. Quite, quite honestly, we're ashamed. We've disappointed the Lord. We've disappointed others, our fellow believers, and we've failed, and we were miserable with that. We've sinned against God, and we feel horrible, feel ashamed. But when we do keep his word, there's this freedom from guilt that we have, that we experience. There's an, an unashamedness that we have. And so when we look upon his commandments, we don't feel ashamed. If, we, if we're not obeying him, we look upon his commandments and we think, wow, I blew that one completely. Number two, the second result, thankfulness. Verse seven, I shall give thanks to you with, an up, with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. We depend upon God to keep his word. He's going to enable us to have an upright heart. We're going to learn his word. We're going to grow in grace. We're going to be instructed in the scriptures. We're going to keep on learning, keep on growing spiritually. And as that happens, we're going to be what? Thankful to God, right? 
thankfulness will, will fill our heart. And then the last result of uh, a person who's depending upon God to help him obey the word is there's determination that will build in his soul. Determination in verse 8. He says, look at the, this, this great uh, statement of determination. After all this, he prays and all this. Verse 8, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. He makes this resolution to keep the word of God. He's determined in the depths of his soul to do it. He's going to do it. He wants to do it. He's committed to it. We talked about, that's why I like Romans 6.17 in connection with Psalm 119. The the word commitment with the whole heart and obeying the form of teaching. Same, similar stuff here. He's committed to this way of life. He's personally committed to obedience to the word of God. That's what it says here. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. We, some people think there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not hyper-Calvinists again. It's okay to be determined. We should be fully engaged, shouldn't we, in what we're doing for the Lord? Work, uh, you talk about the, Mike talked about the workplace. Work is under the Lord. That's being fully engaged at your workplace. Same thing is true with the Scriptures. Where we should be fully engaged. That we should take full responsibility. We should not make excuses for ourselves. I can't do it. You have the Lord to depend upon. We can do it with His help. And notice the balancing statement at the end of verse 8, do not forsake me utterly. Psalmist says, in effect, don't, don't abandon me in this pursuit. I need you. <laughs> I need your help. I can't do without you. With all, without the Lord, all is in vain here. I can't obey the word of God. Yes, we're a call to be obedient to the scripture. Yes, we are. But we also need the Lord to help us with this. He knows left to himself, it's a lost cause completely. Now, left to ourselves, we'd still be uh, on our way to hell, unsaved for that matter, spiritually dead in our sins. This is a way to express the dependence upon God in a negative way. Of course, the Lord would not forsake one so desirous of following him, one so determined to follow him. Why would the Lord forsake that person? He wouldn't. But this statement shows how dependent the psalmist is upon God. This is the way he says it. This is his words. We see his heart for God. We see his love for God when he says this. Lord, I need you. Don't forsake me utterly. Now, how about you tonight? What is your, and I ask myself the same question, what is your relationship to the Word of God tonight? Where do you stand with the Word of God? It's the source of true happiness for those who walk in obedience to it. We're always looking for happiness. This is the source of true happiness, ultimately. Or, likewise, if you fail to obey, you will be a man or, as one person says, a man or woman most miserable. It's true. So we, the, Lord is, the Lord gave his word so we would obey it. We can depend upon him to, help, to fully carry it out. This is what the life of the believer is all about. This is it. Obeying the word of God. We seek the Lord as we obey his word. All the while we're praying that the Lord will enable us to do just that. Obey that which he gave us, which is what he wants us to do in the first place. We, he, we pray that he'll do, he'll do that. Now I hope tonight your desire and your prayer is to obey the word of God. And if that's not the case, let this psalm tonight be the catalyst that can drive you to doing just that. Let's pray. Well, we are grateful again for your word. Uh, we know as we read Psalm 119 what we're going to be facing. Uh, we're going to be talking about the scriptures and, and how we need to be related to them. And we're thankful for the reminder. We need it always. We just pray you give us a love for your word and a desire that this guy had in the psalms. We pray you give us a, an obedient heart, a heart that wants to follow you and do what your, will, what your will is, Lord. We're so often prone to go our own way, prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. But we pray tonight that you'd enable us and turn us back to your, incline our hearts to your testimonies, Lord.
that we might seek to obey them.